Let's go to God in prayer before we dive into this passage. Father, thank you for our church. This is a wonderful community, a wonderful family, a wonderful place for us to enjoy the living God, to worship together, to fellowship together, Lord, to sit under your word together, to hear you speak together. And Lord, that is the posture of our hearts this morning. We ask that you would help us to hear together that we might live for your glory. Lord, I ask that you would help me to speak in such a way and such a manner that serves these people you love so much. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a dark and stormy night when suddenly a scream pierced the silence. Now that's just the opening line in a mystery novel, and who wouldn't want to to read on to find out what happens? And obviously, unless you're brain dead, you don't care. Uh, and, And you have questions. Where did this happen? Who screamed? Why did they scream? The first two verses that we're going to be studying in Exodus 20 this morning are are not the opening lines of a novel, but they continue a powerful and intriguing story of God's deliverance and his purposes and his plans for Israel's future, a future that we will be learning about again and again as we go through this exodus. And who wouldn't want to read to find out what happens next? These opening words in the chapter chapter 20 are crucial to our understanding uh, and and how we make sense of the book of Proverbs. And look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Israel has has made its way to Mount Sinai. They have wandered in the wilderness. They've wandered in the wilderness of Shur. They have wandered in the wilderness of Sin. And now they are in the wilderness of, of Sinai. And they've come to Mount Sinai. And here they are before God. And as we studied last week in chapter 19, God meets with the people of Israel. He meets with them. He speaks to the people of Israel and he does it in a most unique way. He, he comes down on top of the mountain of Mount Sinai and he speaks in thunder and lightning and in dark clouds and he speaks and the, the mountain trembles and the people tremble. And now in verse 1 of chapter 20, God speaks. The second half of Israel's exodus has begun in chapter 19. God has brought them to this place at the foot of Mount Sinai. And and it appears, it might appear to you that, okay, they've had all of these amazing experiences. They've they've gone through a a deliverer showing up. We've read of a burning bush. We've, We've experienced Moses going to Pharaoh. We've seen the 10 plagues. We have seen the escape from Egypt, the Red Sea parting. We have seen the water from the rock. 
we've seen bitter water turn sweet, we've seen manna from heaven, we've seen quail from heaven. I mean, there's just been amazing, and it's an intriguing and and in, enjoyable, adventuresome story that has gone on. And now, all of a sudden, we get to chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments, the law being given. And it might seem like this dynamic story of Israel's salvation kind of ends, and now we get to this dry teaching about law. But that perspective couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, the Exodus story only becomes more robust and more adventuresome as they encounter the words of God in the laws of God. Vacations for me are, are wonderful. And as much as I love getting away to the beach, though, coming home to my own place, my own bed, is really the best experience of all. And like in Israel, even in all their wanderings in the wilderness, at this moment in their history, they have come home. They have, they have come home. Not, not a physical home, not a physical place just yet, but a spiritual home where they have come to know God. And as we look at the second half of the book of Exodus, Israel has come home to a freedom that they've never known. They, they've been freed from the tyranny of slavery. They are now on a new path that leads them to a new life and to a particular place where God has promised he would lead them. If, if you remember back in, in Exodus 3, God told Moses at the burning bush that he would lead the people of God back to that very place, back to Mount Sinai, where that burning bush was, where they would come to worship and serve him. And for the next 10 months, the nation of Israel is going to be encamped at the foot of this mountain. They're going to be at the foot of this mountain as much happens in their lives. And we are going to learn what God's plans are all about and what God has for them. And we're going to learn mostly, we're going to learn about God in this passage. We're going to learn about the goodness of God to the people of Israel. And, and we're going to learn about a number of things this morning that is going, that's, in a sense, going to let us take off as we get into, starting next week, each of the commandments. The first thing that we're going to learn this morning, because this story is continuing, it's not like the story stopped. We've been reading narrative. We've been reading long, long passages about what's been going on with Israel. We spent last week in all of chapter 19, all the story of the, of the mountain experience. And, and even though we're only having two verses here, we, the story's continuing. Let me read these two verses. Chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. This is the foundation. This is the runway to God giving them the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words. This, this, is, this really is the now most significant moment in Israel's history. And the first thing that we learn of God is the voice of God. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying. 
The, the first thing they learn about when God speaks to them is God is real. Yeah, yeah, there's been plagues. There's been Moses, the mediator, with his staff and all these things happening and the Red Sea parting. Yes, there has been, you know, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so the presence of God is, is real. But at this very moment, God himself talks. God himself speaks and he speaks to his people and it reveals to them that he is real and he is present and he is powerful. And most importantly, his words mean something. His words mean something. Up until this moment, Israel had only known God from a distance, but now they meet him personally and they hear his voice. Remember, they've been forbidden to draw near to God on the mountain on pain of death. And, and yet they're still near enough to experience not only God's presence, but God's voice. God speaking. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you because you're thousands of years ahead in the future. But, but imagine a people that have been enslaved for over 400 years. Imagine a people that have been around a, a, an idolatrous nation who, who serves worthless gods, who have been in silence for over 400 years. Silence. No words from God. No mediator speaking to them for over 400 years. And now God speaks to them. And he speaks to them he speaks to them his law. He speaks to them those words, and he, he does it through his glory revealed on this mountain, this Mount Sinai. Isaiah 42 says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. And that's what God is doing here. He's magnifying his law, and he's making it glorious. These commandments that we're going to be studying reveal God's glory. They reveal God's character. They reveal the goodness of God. They reveal the love of God. They reveal the grace of God. They reveal the kindness of God. They reveal God who is caring for his people. The law is not just some arbitrary rule being passed down to this people. It is God's love expressed in truth. It is God's love expressed in in words to his people, to his people that they would obey his law. They would learn obedience to his law so that they would display his glory to a world that needs to see God. See, God has spent all this time making himself known to Israel, and now he is speaking laws to them that they will obey, that they should obey, so they could live in a manner that would glorify his name so the world would know who he is. All through Exodus, God has been making himself known to Israel through mighty works in unmatched power, in, in promises being fulfilled, in coming to, to Mount Sinai. God has been doing all of this. And now, and now he is taking the next step and he is speaking to them and he is 
giving them laws. As, as they tremble before him, he's, he's giving them written laws that bind them to him. God is using this law to bind them to him and to bind them to one another. This Decalogue, these Ten Commandments. Moments before, moments before God spoke, he, he revealed his glory and all this fire and smoke and thunder and dark clouds and lightning. But, but now he's revealing himself personally by the words he speaks, words that are words literally of, of eternal life because they display God's holy character and will one day, these words will one day bring his people to salvation in Jesus Christ. Listen, as Devin has, has taught during the series, we, we should not and we cannot read Exodus without keeping Genesis in mind. And 21 is very similar to Genesis, one where God speaks and creation comes into existence. And now God speaks and his law comes into, not into existence, but to be reestablished. God speaks again here, setting rules that have always, always been in place since creation. These are not new laws. The, the Ten Commandments are not new laws that have, that have suddenly appeared out of nowhere. No, this is, this is God formalizing his covenant with Israel um, in the Exodus, and, he, and he's now formalizing their responsibility and how they should live before God in order to experience his blessings and so that by their obedience, they would display his glory. God, God is, is reestablishing his law. God's law is, is eternal. It's always been around. This isn't something God just thought of. How do I get these people to do what I want? How do I, how do I get these people to, to live for my glory? I know. I'll make up some rules for them. And 10's an easy number to remember, so let's give them 10. That, that's, that's not what is happening here. God's law is eternal, and it's been present since creation, since before creation. It was in effect before God wrote it down on stone tablets. It was in effect. The, the commandments that God gives to Moses at Mount Sinai they're not new because in many stories in the Bible prior to Exodus 20, laws we see were, were in place to guide and protect creation. Think back to the early part of Exodus. The 10 plagues God visited upon Pharaoh were a punishment for Egypt's idolatry that violated the first and second commandments before the commandments were given. Moses was exiled because he was a murderer, which was a violation of the sixth commandment. At the burning bush, God taught Moses to honor his name in keeping with, in concert with the third commandment. In, in Exodus 16, we read about the Sabbath for the first time before the commandment about the Sabbath is given. And we read about Israel violating that commandment in Exodus 16. And obviously in Genesis, there are, there are many stories of people. There's a murderer, the Sodomites condemned as adulterers. Abraham was a liar. Lot's wife was a covetous woman. And so you see, this, this isn't suddenly some new law. This, this was law that, that creation understood. And God just republishes, re, reestablishes here at this moment. God's moral law goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve violated many of his commands, stealing by taking forbidden fruit. 
covetousness by wanting what God had not given them. Idolatry by desiring to become like God. As God speaks, he reestablishes his laws that humanity has always known. We read about that in Romans 12, that, that even though they had not... Well, let me, let me read Romans 12 to you. Romans 12, 1. Even though that they did not know God, they had God's law written on their hearts. And I need to find it. Somebody tell me where that is in Romans 1. Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. Claiming to be wise, they, came, they became fools. And he goes on, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. They are without excuse. God's law has always been in existence. God's moral law goes all the way back. And, and as he speaks here, he still speaks to us today. God, God has never stopped speaking to his creation, to his people. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God has spoken to us by his son. That those who belong to him might Obey his commands, his words of life, that their lives might bring lives of worship and service and honor and glory to the Lord. So the first thing we learn here in Exodus 20 is God speaks, the the voice of God. The second thing that God reminds Israel of is his covenant promise, I am am the Lord your God. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God. In these first words, God reminds Israel of their sacred and special relationship. At Exodus 3, God says to Moses, Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he speaks to Moses from a burning bush, but he speaks. And he reminds him of the promise that has been in place, his covenant promise. Philip Riken said, God's relationship with his people is personal because the true and living God is a personal God who knows his people in a personal way. Notice that when God first called to Moses, he called him by name, Moses, Moses. It's in It is here in Exodus 3 also that we learn of God's personal name, Yahweh. Moses says, what do I tell the people of Israel when I go to them and tell them that that God has sent me? What, What if they say, who is God? And what does he tell them? He says, tell them I am Yahweh. Your God has sent you. 
I am. And now in Exodus 20, God reminds Moses and Israel that the relationship is still the same. To emphasize this personal care, where it says, I am the Lord, your God. Don't first read that as corporate. That actually, that that Hebrew word there is singular. I am your God. I am your God. I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your God. Yes, corporately as well. Because he's Laws are being given to the nation of Israel. But, but God at this moment is identifying himself as your God. The God who will never leave you nor forsake you. The, the God who has promised, lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. The God who is your God. This, this is, this is beyond remarkable. We, I, I can read over those words so quickly. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land. Yeah, I mean, we must pause and we must consider I am the Yahweh, the Lord, your God. Those words are the very reason you sit here today. Those those words are the very reason you have hope in a world with devils filled. Those words are the words that mean that you have an eternal hope for a future for many that is dark. Don't don't pass over those words too quickly, brothers and sisters. I am your God. I am the Lord your God. But the Lord doesn't stop there. Not only does he... He speaks his voice to Israel and he reminds them of his covenant promise of who he is and who they are. But he also reminds them of his grace to them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Immediately prior to giving Israel his law, the first thing God does is remind them of their relationship rooted in his covenant love and of his grace in delivering them from Egypt, from the house of slavery. The order of this passage is significant. First gospel, then law. First gospel, then law. One commentator said the commandments follow the gospel of undeserved deliverance. Undeserved deliverance. Not, not just a few, but many Christians I have heard throughout the years and, and myself early on believe the gospel and the law are somehow in opposition to one another. That the Old Testament is the Old Testament of law and the New Testament is the New Testament of grace. That is not only simplistic, it's erroneous. 
It could not be further from the truth when there is a failure to rightly understand and appreciate the law in the Christian life. It it leads to, actually it leads to legalism. This is all about grace. And the law is all about grace. Uh, And I'll get to that in a moment, but look at all that God has done to Israel prior to giving the law. Unmerited mercy during the plagues, unmerited atonement at the Passover, deliverance from slavery, deliverance from the oppression of an idolatrous nation, and the temptations to serve other gods, and deliverance from death. They've been miraculously redeemed by God, and not because of any inherent worth that they have. In fact, just in many ways the opposite. Not because they've earned favor, but simply because God chose to bestow His love and his grace upon these chosen people. Like us. Like us. Chosen by God. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God. God chose us. From eternity past. God chose us. See, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, is no mere li- list of laws just given in, in the abstract. It, it's given by God to a people he's just redeemed, that he cares for. And they reflect the manner in which his people are to live and be holy. And it's, it, listen, it's safe to say these laws are simply more than just good rules to live by. The, these laws show us the nature of God. They reveal who God is, and because they do, they deserve our very close attention. We see in them not simply what we must do, but we see in them what God is like. And they reveal to us how unlike God we are. In James chapter 1, words I'm sure you are quite familiar with, James 1 James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And, and we, we often look into the law we can forget. This is 1997, and a young couple in our church, where I was in, in Atlanta, the church, Lord willing, you are going to, they had a baby. And so one of the other pastors and I show up at the hospital, and the nurse comes in, and she looks at me. Now, I am 42 years old. And she looks at me and goes, oh, you must be such a proud grandfather. I thought, lady, I'm 42 years old. I am not a grandfather. And I'm thinking, what is she seeing? <laughs> so I, did, I went home that night and I looked in the mirror. And I was shocked. <laughs> Every morning I get up and I brush my teeth and I shave and I brush my what's left of my hair and and I just and then I go away and I, but try looking 
intently into the mirror. You're going to see things you don't like and that you don't even know were there. And that mirror is going to reveal who you really are. In other words, your, your age and the fact that you are declining and the fact that you are degrading and the fact that, that what you think you look like, everybody else sees something very much different. That is what the law of the Lord does as well. I look at myself and I forget and I walk away. And so God gives this law and he uses this law to protect us, to care for us, to watch over us, to preserve us. That is grace. That's where the law is grace. It, it's not just rules. It's not just this authoritarian being saying, do this or you are dead. It is God preserving his people through the law. Sinclair Ferguson describes this moment as the grace of God in giving of the law. He says, the law was the gracious gift of a loving father, even if in itself it does not pr provide the power to keep it. That's not, yeah, there's no quote for that. Uh, the Israel learns by the giving of the law, which is also an expression of God's grace. God gives the law to show Israel who they really are and that they can't keep the law. That, that's grace. That's an expression of grace. Listen, you're in trouble. The problem is you don't know you're in trouble. And so I'm going to help you see you're in trouble. Here's the mirror. Look, you're a sinner. And you are on the pathway to death. And here is this law that is showing you who you really are so that you can recognize that. And in that grace-filled moment, you also, as I reveal it to you, begin to see the need for a Savior. Israel learns quickly that they cannot keep the law because shortly after the giving of these Ten Commandments, what happens? This golden calf appears. And the very first, the very first law, you shall have no other gods before me. And they create a golden calf. Our, our inability to perfectly obey God's moral law reveals our need for a Savior. And, and that is... That is why we need Christ. And, and that is why as Christians, listen, our, our power, our ability to, to live holy lives, to obey God's law, to, to obey his commandments, our power doesn't come from without because God gave us this moral law. Our, our ability comes from the indwelling spirit, the dwelling Christ within us, the, who was the obedient one, who was the law keeper, who never failed the law, who perfectly kept the law. He dwells in us. And we can keep the law. We can live holy lives. And that law has been written on our hearts because of the shed blood of Christ. And 
you have to understand too, in a little bit we're going to get to not only this, the Ten Commandments are God's moral law. We're going to get to ceremonial laws and civil laws. The ceremonial laws are all the kind of weird laws that if you have mold on the side of your house, you don't do this and you do this and you kick your neighbor out. And, and the civil laws are, are, are as well different. But, and, but the moral laws, these Ten Commandments, these moral laws have never passed away. When Christ came, the ceremonial laws and the civil laws, they, they were put to bed. As commentators say, they were abrogated. They were, they were stopped. But the moral law, these Ten Commandments, never. We, we still today shall not murder. We still today shall not covet. We still today shall not lie. We still today shall not have idols. That moral law still is in place. And throughout redemptive history, God has had, always had in his plan, a, a restoration to restore us back to his image. And he begins with this law, an, an image that was marred horribly in Eden. And his plan of salvation has always involved the renewal of what was true in us in creation at the beginning, that we were created to reflect the goodness and glory and character of God. And marred at Marred at, at the garden, God is in the process of restoring us. Sinclair Ferguson said this, the exodus was itself a restoration intended to be seen as a kind of recreation. The people were placed in a kind of Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. There, as in Eden, they were given commands to regulate their lives to the glory of God. Grace and duty, privilege and responsibility, indicative and imperative were the order of the day as they lived before God and with one another. As the foundation of these applications, God gave them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Now fast forward to Calvary and the coming of the Spirit. As Moses ascended Mount Sinai and brought down the law on tablets of stone, now Christ has ascended into the heavenly mount. But in contrast to Moses, he has sent down his spirit who rewrites the law, not merely on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. The giving of the law in Exodus 20 is a shadow, but also a covenant promise of all that is to come and be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, and God spoke all these words. He spoke words of grace. I am the Lord your God who redeemed you in grace out of the land of Egypt, who rescued you in grace out of the house of slavery. Now Israel's responsibility is to keep the law as a part of their responsibility in keeping the covenant that they have with God. The law Again, the law was not given in a legalistic way, just the opposite. It was so that Israel would now be free to worship and serve God rather than a cruel and tyrannical taskmaster who they toiled under for centuries. They, they weren't rescued simply to remove them from a bad situation, but to a new way of living. You and I were saved not just from our slavery to sin, but to something new, to a new way of living, a new community, a new family, a new relationship with God. That, my friends, is grace. 
Keeping God's law is the very thing that actually brings them to grace. Our obedience to God's commands. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That brings us to grace. Philip Riken said, when the children of Israel asked what they had to keep God's law, their parents were supposed to tell them a story. The only way they could understand the meaning of the law was by knowing its context, which was the experience of the Exodus, the story of their salvation. First gospel, then law. In Deuteronomy 6, when your sons... When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. First gospel, then law. And it's hard, I mean, we see our own salvation story in Israel's story. The story begins with our slavery to sin. And if we were, you and I were in such deep spiritual bondage, there was no hope of escape for us. But God set us free from sin and he set us free from Satan through the saving work of Jesus Christ. His death and his resurrection are our great exodus. Exodus 20 begins not with law, but with gospel. And of our story of coming to faith in Christ is exactly the same. We were, we were rescued from the slavery in Egypt of our sin. Grace saved us as it saved Israel. And it will save those who don't know Christ if they're willing to put their faith and trust in Christ. Is that you? If, if you don't know Christ, you are, you are Israel in Egypt. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you were Israel rescued from Egypt. Now God's desire is that Israel and us, that that we embrace and delight in the law that he has given us, that we might live for his glory. And and we will talk more about that in the coming weeks. But just just remember the, the many Psalms that talk about God's law. Psalm, Psalm 1 But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 19, David David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Throughout Scripture, we see examples of men and women who love, who loved God's law. How is it they loved God's law so much? It's because God's law gave them a way to live. It's because God's law was an expression of grace, not authority that is a viewed as legalistic. It was an expression of grace. There is grace in loving God's law. And so as we dive into the Ten Commandments in the following weeks, let's come with a heart postured to love this law, to learn from this law, and to experience grace. Father, thank you for your law that leads us to Christ, that reveals our our slavery and our need for a savior. And thank you for giving this law because in grace you have loved us and you desire us to be free. And so Lord, help us this morning to to receive your law, to look in the mirror of your law and not come away forgetful, but to come away remembering your love and your grace and your covenant with us that we might live for your glory. In Christ's name. Amen.